The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. I think it was a mistake and I apologise for it. I think in hindsight it was the wrong thing to do. We now have a quarter of the electorate just saying spontaneously without being prompted. The biggest problem in Britain is its own politicians. Changing one man at the top of the Tory party won't make any difference. It won't fix the problems. Let's have a fresh start for Britain. Let's have a real change of government. You're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Ewan Potts. And I'm Stephen Carroll. Today we're dissecting last night's Tory leadership face-off and ahead of tomorrow's train strike, we'll be talking to railways expert Tom Haynes-Doran. Well, for anyone not busy watching Love Island, last night's TV debate between Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss was a tense affair, but with little love lost. The former Chancellor thinks the Foreign Secretary's economic policies are delusional. The mistake that we will make is at a time when inflation is already high. Everyone's already feeling it in their bills. Interest rates are already on the rise. So into that situation, does anyone think that the sensible thing to do is go on a massive borrowing spree worth tens of billions of pounds and fuel inflation even further? As for Liz Truss, whose birthday it is today, she said that Rishi Sunak's plan would cause growth to fall through the floor. Everybody thinks that putting up taxes at this moment is going to hurt the economy. You can't put up taxes and get growth. If we follow Rishi's plans, we we are headed for a recession. And that's not not enough blue-on-blue action. There is another TV debate tonight. Let's get into the detail of what was talked about in that debate last night. We're joined in studio by uh, Bloomberg's EMEA Economics and Government correspondent Lizzie Burden and her opinion columnist Marcus Ashworth. Great to have you both with us. Lizzie, then, you know, it seems like what we're talking about is the economic battle that was underway here was that the dominant issue and did the candidates manage to kind of distinguish themselves from each other in the debate? Well it has remained the dominant issue because that's really where the fault line is. They both want tax cuts but they want them on different timescales and that'll have different outcomes for the UK economy. Uh, Liz Truss says that if uh, she has her tax cuts from day one as she puts it then uh, it'll drive growth. Rishi Sunak says it'll drive inflation. Our economists at Bloomberg Economics say that it'll drive both. But yes it was wasn't the only issue that was covered. They also talked about China. They're now battling it out to be the toughest on China. They agreed that the UK shouldn't be intervening militarily in Ukraine because, of course, it's not a, U- a NATO country. And they both said they wanted levelling up to continue. So really broad agreement, but the fault line remains tax cuts. Marcus, we've really focused so far on the economy. Are, are you convinced by their plans, by their respective plans? Uh-huh. No, not not the slightest, but for different reasons. I mean, Rishi Sunak starting from a place he would not want to be, uh, and in fact, he probably would prefer to, and would be the best person to enact Liz Truss's plans, who I don't think she has a coherence to, to understanding quite what she's saying. I'm not sure if she's held hostage by the right wing of her party, but she's saying all the right things, but not necessarily in the correct order. <laughs> um 
Lizzie, you spent um, a lot of time in a previous life and in your current life as well uh, further down Threadneedle Street at the, your friends the Bank of England. I'm interested because you did hear Liz Truss wasn't very very nice about the Bank of England during the debate. No, she's criticised the bank's handling of the inflation crisis and she's also questioned whether after 25 years it's about time that the Bank of England has a look at its mandate. She's alluded to changing it to perhaps in line with the Bank of Japan's mandate, although that raises an eyebrow because of course there's deflation in Japan. Frankly, I don't think that Liz Truss knows what she would do with the Bank of England's mandate. I don't know what you think, Marcus, but there has been mention about nominal GDP, which I must say might not be that radical. It's something that Jim O'Neill, the former Treasury Minister, has proposed previously. But to do it in the height of an inflation crisis, when I speak to other macro strategists, they say it would be bonkers uh, to, and it would drive investors away from gilts and the pound. Well, um, I think she's right to question uh, the current mandate the Bank of England has. I think even the previous government was in the process of doing it, but got sort of waylaid by the pandemic. So uh, I think Lizzie's correct to spot out the timing of this and the manner in which she's doing is going to unsettle people. However, is there a time at some uh, place in the next few months or years to have a look at quite what um, the Bank of England is supposed to be doing. I think definitely yes. So she's hitting on a, on a theme, but as with so much of what she comes up with, it, it doesn't make much sense and it's potentially worrying. The Bank of Japan stuff in particular. Now, there is inflation in Japan. It's around 2%, but they really want it. Uh, they really, really, really want inflation. They've been desperate for it for, uh, you know, as, as Lizzie mentioned, deflation for the last two or three decades. It's it's completely the wrong uh, comparison. She also mentioned Canada. Again, the different types of economies. And I think that is what's causing people to scratch their head. She doesn't really understand what Solvency 2 or indeed MIFID 2 is and a whole raft of other stuff on the economy, which is where Rishi Sunak clearly does shine. It's just that he wants to continue with fiscal tightening and raise taxes into the teeth of a uh, huge uh, cost of living crisis and potentially a recession as well. And I think Liz Truss is very right to put, call him out on that. Yeah, quite odd to, to raise Japan, to say the least. Um, Lizzie, just talk us through where we are with the economics of this, and particularly the, the fiscal headroom. Do, do the, the numbers that government, government finances back up trusts' calls, never mind the politics of it? Has she got the kind of fiscal wiggle room to do it? Well, the Centre for Economics and Business Research says that she does, though it made sure to say it doesn't necessarily mean that she should use that wiggle room because you don't know what lies ahead. Uh, And she has also pointed to the OECD saying that it's this premature fiscal contraction that's led to the recession risks in the UK. So there are arguments uh, for the tax cuts, but uh, Rishi Sunak is saying that uh, what she's doing would add to inflation. And he actually cited Patrick Minford, the Brexiter economist, who in fact Liz Truss has cited uh, as saying that in 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 interest rates would have to rise to 7% to contain the inflationary effects of her tax cuts. Now, Liz Truss says that this is just scaremongering akin to project fear in the run-up to Brexit. Uh, I wonder, Marcus, really, whether... Rishi Sunak's camp trying to be sensible uh, is a bit like the Remainer camp before the Brexit referendum. Marcus is positively fizzing in his seat. I I, I actually think Rishi Sunak's made a big mistake in putting on this because Patrick Minford didn't say that it was going to 7%. He he has a different view on the world to a number of different economists who are, are along the lines of what Liz Truss wants. And she did make that point quite calmly later on. He said, he thinks that, uh, you know, the normal run of where uh, Bank of England interest rates have been over the course of the last 
several decades has been between the 5 and 7%. And he has qualified what he said. He didn't call or expect that, that the Bank of England is going to raise rates to 7%. And as Liz Truss belatedly said afterwards, it's up to the Bank of England that we have an independent Bank of England. And therefore, one, she's not calling out uh, any change to the independence. I think for Rishi Sunak to pick on that, they see it, view it as a weakness. They've got uh, the point that maybe she doesn't quite understand what she's, what she's saying and she's reaching for a few... Uh, different types of economists to make up different things. However, I think it's poor politics and very easily turned down his picking on this particular point. Minford did say that interest rates of 5, 6, 7% are normal and probably wouldn't be a bad thing though, didn't he? And, 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 yeah, well, that's his view and it's got nothing to do with what, you know, it's, as she made quite clear, the Bank of England sets interest rates and, and I think that's, picking on that particular point is, I think, uh, missing what they should be focusing on is, is really what is the coherence of her overall plan and does she understand it? But, but I also think that the more people like you and me and economists criticise Liz Truss's coherence on the economy, the more she laps it up because she says she wants to take on the blob that is the conventional thinking at the BOE, the Treasury, the city, which is us. And so she wants some radical thinking to get rid of the stagnation that she sees in the UK economy that she blames on the blob. Well, she's probably right. And I, I think... Uh, I think Think she will do some 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 interesting things. Which, what she breaks in the meantime, uh, and whether or not she actually understands what she wants, is is, is where I think it all's going to go horribly wrong. So, uh, so attacking experts, you know, as, as as Gove obviously did. The other thing about high interest rates, of course, is that for many Tory voters, particularly Tory members, you imagine who have a lot of savings and probably their mortgage. It's probably quite a nice thing to... Ah, <laughs> you've picked up on something which, which very cynical people have said, the, and the reason why Rishi Sunak has picked up on this 7% comment is he thinks, perhaps, that what she's trying to dog-whistle to is uh, pensioners within the Tory membership who actually don't care where interest rates are unless they're high for their savings. But yeah. I wouldn't be so cynical. <laughs> you not cynical? I wouldn't believe oh. that for a moment. Not uh, on a Tuesday. Well, anyway. Mar- Marcus, if you were hosting the next debate on this, what would you want to ask the candidates? Well, I would want to understand more clearly exactly what uh, Liz Truss's economic plan is, and I think it'd be interesting to develop. Uh, well, setting aside that you mentioned the NHS and uh, indeed defence policy overall, and, and a raft of other issues in the wider economy, uh, and I think that they do need to widen out uh, what their various uh, actual a commitment to the manifesto is and why they think you know clearly Rishi Sunak has deviated under Boris Johnson a long way from that and, and why he wants to which way he wants to tax. I think both of them are going to cut taxes regardless. Uh, we've got a very large um, increase in energy bills coming up only a couple of months time. Uh, it's as Lizzie pointed out it's a question of how they get there in different ways and I think there needs to be more analysis because it really is the economy and tax plans which is the big divide. They're both in the right wing of the party. They have a lot in common. It's just trying to work out uh, where they differ. And it's really it's the methodology uh, and how they're going to run in a competent uh, manner and deliver. Because the real thing is, I don't think either of them are going to be able to deliver a quarter of what they're trying to hope for, because there won't be the other the time or the ability to get it through Parliament. Mark, it's really nice to get your view. I know you've got to dash off to an important meeting now, so we'll let you go. That's uh, Bloomberg opinion columnist Marcus Ashworth. Uh, Lizzie, you're going to stay with us. Um, just uh, a little bit of time left. What's your overall sort of verdict as, as to who won last night? We had some polls out on that, didn't we? Yeah, uh, well, Rishi Sunak is clearly the stronger debater, I think. But Liz Truss has come out of this saying that 
that was him mansplaining, or at least her allies in her camp have said that. And so that could go down badly among the voters. Interestingly, Rishi Sunak seems to have polled better among uh, the population as a whole, whereas trust seems to be winning among the Conservative voters, where it matters. Because, of course, if of course if Rishi Sunak can't get over the line, then uh, it doesn't matter because he won't be in the general election at all. And one of the big reasons I think that he's falling behind is because he is being painted as the continuity candidate because, of course, he's going to continue with the economic policies that he... C- he started as chancellor which is ironic that he's the continuity candidate which is usually a benefit when it's Liz Truss who's still in the Boris Johnson's cabinet as the foreign secretary and meanwhile Rishi Sunak is being painted as the traitor whose resignation was one of the first to lead to this mass exodus of ministers that led to Boris Johnson's downfall and that does not go down well with the party. Okay, Lizzie Burden, thanks very much. We'll have plenty more on the Conservative leadership debate coming up. Stay with us. This is Bloomberg Westminster. You're listening to Bloomberg Westminster. I'm Stephen Carroll. And I'm Ewan Potts. Well, we've just been speaking to Bloomberg's Marcus Ashworth and Lizzie Burden about the Tory leadership race. But one element of last night's debate that's getting quite a bit of attention today is what the candidates were wearing, notably Rishi Sunak's suit and Liz Truss's earrings. Uh, Well, we asked Bloomberg's Leanne Garrens to look into this story for us. Leanne, what's being said, first of all, um, in the media today about what the the leadership candidates candidates wore? So, Stephen, it wasn't all about policy, was it? It seems that fashion also makes waves when it comes to big debates. And I don't know if any of you were checking your Twitter feed, but lots of noise on there. And also, talk really turned to wardrobe and this is after the culture secretary Nadine Dorries tweeted that Liz Truss who she is indeed supporting to be the Tory leader um, will be travelling the UK wearing £4.50 earrings from the budget jewellery chain store Claire's accessories so that's what apparently she was wearing with her outfit last night while Rishi Sunak wore a Henry Herbert suit in Teesside where the debate was worth £3,500 and he also wore Prada shoes worth £450. But when I had a look at both of their outfits, I actually thought Liz Truss looked extremely polished last night. She wore a blue dress, the colour of the Conservative Party, of course. Her earrings were very nice. They were very sparkly. I noticed (laughs) those before I even realised they were from Claire's accessories. And Rishi Sunak seemed a little bit more casual, didn't he? He didn't have a tie on. He seemed to have a nice suit on, but also a bit more of a relaxed affair where I felt like Liz Truss really power dressed last night and came out with great makeup and a great overall look. It does feel like this is a very British debate to be having, doesn't it? You, you imagine that in America the candidates would be keen to show off their wealth, they'd be wearing the most expensive gear, whereas in Britain it's like, my earrings are cheaper than your earrings, and it's kind of like, how, how budget can we go? It's a very kind of cl- class dominated thing, isn't it? On the issue of gender, though, do you think do you think there's a sense that the two candidates are treated differently because because of their different genders? I just want to say one thing. I've had a lot a lot of reading, and I've looked at all the comments when it comes to this story across social media. And members of the public say that they actually don't care how much candidates spent on their clothes, mm-hmm. which is really interesting because I actually think that 
I would wear earrings and probably all of my friends that I speak to would also wear earrings that were £4.50 as long as they were nice and suited the show that I was doing or suited where I was going. Um, And I do think it's a little bit harder for females and I can hear all you males out there saying, oh yeah, of course it is. But um, you guys can put on like a lovely well-cut suit and a Mm. nice crisp shirt, some lovely shoes and it's quite easy. But for us, we really have to think of what colour dress we're going to wear, the jewellery to match that dress. And I did notice she had a really nice necklace on that matched her earrings. So I thought it was a really thought through process that Liz Truss did go through last night. And also, she does like to dress like Maggie Thatcher. We know that. I mean, it's very interesting because like you remember that story about the American TV presenter that was wearing the same suit for however long and nobody noticed. And like certainly my own experience of being on television is quite similar. People don't notice what you're wearing if you're a man. and, And that's part of the inbuilt bias that we're all experiencing. Leanne, though, you, because you're on Bloomberg Television as well, you get professional style advice as well as being, of course, naturally very gifted at style. <laughs> um, give, give us then the kind of basic advice for, for uh, kind of generally speaking, what should candidates be thinking about for style because it's part of their overall pitch? Well, I think it's important for both of them to think about giving a power style and giving the kind of... Um, aura in a sense that they are in charge and that's something that's really important Stephen you know this I know this and Ewan knows this too when I'm on TV the dresses that I wear would not necessarily be what I would wear in my real life but it gives me the power and the style and the confidence to deliver with authority and I think this is what's important when it comes to Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak and I felt like we really saw that last night in both of their styles he's more relaxed but still has that sort of very expensive look. She also had a really lovely look. But also, I think that the £4.50 earrings, to be honest, were on purpose so she can appeal to the audience. Yeah, never never has a pair of earrings been so much discussed on this programme. I don't know, because I know that Stephen used to own about 500,000 red t-shirts when he yeah, was a right. kids TV presenter. Did anyone notice that you had the same shirt on? Oh no, they were they were different, but it was just like that was that was the uniform. That was what, you know, it was dressing for the, the occasion of what you're doing. So yeah, it's an interesting But interesting do you remember, one. I was just thinking about something. Theresa May and her shoes... Yeah, yeah, people people constantly discuss them. And I feel like a lot of the time, Theresa May's shoes made the front pages instead of her policies. So fashion has a place. Mm. We should be talking about more important things. Okay, Leanne, (laughs) thank you very much uh, for that. Great stuff. Well, a different subject now. Rail passengers are bracing for another day of disruption as some 40,000 workers go on strike tomorrow after talks between network rail, train operators and the RMT union failed to find agreement. But when the current round of strikes is resolved, which probably won't be any time soon, is there a better way forward for Britain's railways? Well, our next guest is the author of a book due out later this year called Derailed, How to Fix Britain's Broken Railways. Tom Haynes-Doran is also a research fellow in transport systems at the University of Leeds. Tom, thanks very much for being with us. What is then the big problem with our railways? I think the big problem with our railways is that for many years, successive governments haven't had uh, a clear idea about what they want the railways to do and what they're for. Um, For um, probably about the last 40 or 50 years at least, um, there's been a a thinking in government uh, that railways should operate as a business. So they should aim to make a profit rather than be reliant on public subsidy. Um, And none of the um, 
ways to achieve that and that's been done through various means through cuts uh, through investment to grow patronage uh, and more recently through privatization none of those means have achieved profitability so um until we get a, a clear sense of what the railways should be doing and i i would argue that they should be seen as a, so a social service rather than a business um, we're going to have these continued problems with lack of funding and a continue, uh, continued drive, if you like, to drive down uh, costs, especially with the workforce. And that's really what's behind the latest round of strikes. Tom, passenger numbers have grown enormously, though, haven't they, since privatisation? And, and I think faster than most other countries in Europe. So on that metric, c couldn't you say our railways have been a pretty big success story? I think if you look at the absolute numbers of people traveling, they've, they have gone up uh, since privatization, uh, although they were going up before privatization. So there's a question of how much of that is uh, correlation, how much is causation. Um, so, you know, I think the, the, the question about what, why people travel and why uh, increasing numbers happens is, are people really having a choice uh, when they're, they're traveling in that period that there's been a huge increase in commuting in general and, and a huge increase in, in other modes of transport too uh, and a in huge increase in congestion especially in cities um, but in that time in real terms uh, you know in, in, in taking into account inflation uh, fares have increased by 40 percent um, there, there, there are more delays than there were before privatization and arguably other aspects of the service are uh, are more difficult for passengers too. So if they have been attracted to the railways um, because of the, the the attractiveness of the product, I'm not sure where that attractiveness lies in that analysis. So my, uh, my reading of it is that people have been travelling more by railways because they've had no other choice. Mm. Is, is it true that railways in Britain are much more expensive than in other countries? I mean, somebody presumably has to pay the cost everywhere, but is it just that they're unfairly or more weighted towards consumers here yeah i mean the, the most obvious exam sort of comparison if you like are other european railways um i think there's something happening for example in germany uh i think you can get a, a season ticket for all railway journeys uh for a year for something on on the order of about uh one and a half thousand pounds now that's that's what someone would pay for a season ticket just for one month to go into central yeah London. and they're experimenting with the nine euro ticket there as well but that's yeah. state subsidy yes. so is is that just a question yes. of who pays for that is it taxpayers or is it passengers yeah so the state so we've got the not only have we got the probably the highest rail fares in europe we've also got the highest levels of state subsidy so what why how can that be um Actually, in my book, I analyze the flows of money that go into the system from passengers and taxpayers and, and ask that very question, where did the money go? Um, privatization increased public subsidy by around uh, four times what it was before. That was before COVID and it's gone up even more since. Tom, um, uh, And most of that money has gone to um, the international private finance whether Tom, that be the owners of transport companies or the lenders of private finance, which have made huge amounts of money out of the system. I want to ask you about this idea of much cheaper train yeah. fares, because it sounds great. You know, I use the train quite a lot and I'd like to pay much less. But when trains are already full, as they are certainly in the southeast and I would say probably most of the intercity routes as well, how, how can you cut fares w w without, you know, massively changing the infrastructure 
there is yeah. no capacity for lots more people, is there? I think it's. I think what we've seen since COVID, you've had a decrease in um, in commuting. I think it's a, down to about twenty percent of what it was before, um, and that seems to be like a stable number now. I think that's reflective of a lot of people working from home. Uh, leisure, leisure seems to have come back to about the same place as it was before, or even more popular because of um, staycations and that sort of thing. Uh, but if you were to cut fares and I think there's a very important social justice aspect to that because the poorest people in our society, the vast majority of whom don't own cars, for example, uh, so they don't have a choice. Um, you, you need to, you do need to look at the capacity. And I would question uh, whether we need such high fares or on those commuter routes. Can we get some? Can we allow some people onto mm. those more empty services? But also, do, do why do we need so many carriages? That are empty, that are for first-class passengers. Uh, it's, okay. it's, it seems madness to me that in a climate crisis we've got empty trains running around for a few uh, rich business passengers. Okay, Fasc- fascinating stuff. Tom Haynes Doran, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, your book, How to Fix Britain's Broken Railways, is out later this year. Uh, we'll of course have more on the next leadership debate from the Tory Party uh, on tomorrow's show. This is Bloomberg Westminster. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London.